The following message was presented during the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministries 2017 Prophecy Conference season. Now here's Mike Stallard with a message from Daniel chapter 2, verses 31 through 49, Destiny of the Gentiles. We're in Daniel chapter 2. We're going to finish up the chapter. Uh, Daniel 2, 31 to 49, the destiny of the Gentiles. And as we look at this passage, there are uh, a, lot of, a lot of parts and pieces to this. So stay with me. I'm just going to summarize a few things and try to make some practical application at the end. Uh, we see in the context here, we have the prior part of Daniel 2 that uh, Clarence did such a good job uh, walking us through. Uh, this, and we also have the structure of Daniel 2 through 7. And in the prior part of Daniel 2, the king has a dream and no one can interpret. And we saw that. In the structure, we have inverted order and chapters that go together. Now let me diagram this for you. In the way that the Hebrew thought goes, they, they pair chapters together. Chapter 2 with chapter 7. Chapter 2 has four world kingdoms as a statue. In chapter 7, four world kingdoms as wild animals. The last one's really wild. Daniel 3, three Hebrew children in the fiery furnace. Daniel 6, you have Daniel in the lion's den. Similar concepts. Daniel 4, Nebuchadnezzar's brought low. And Daniel 5, Belshazzar is brought low. Nebuchadnezzar, the first great king of Babylon. Belshazzar, the last king of Babylon. And in this structure in Hebrew thought, the, mid, the, the, the middle ones, four and five, give the key thought that the author's trying to get along out, out there for people, although all the details are important. But the idea of God bringing down the proud and arrogant world kingdoms and humbling them, he's the one who raises up and puts down. They don't do that themselves. And that's the, one of the key thoughts in this section of the book. And so keep that in mind as we actually look at the details of the dream. So when we get into uh, verse 31, let me read that verse. You, O king, were watching. Daniel's talking uh, to Nebuchadnezzar. And behold, a great image, this great image whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. There are three key words here. It's a great image, and that term carries the idea of tall or large. This wasn't a life-size statue in the dream. It was a big statue, large. And we see from uh, chapter 3, we're going to see a 90-foot statue. Whether that's uh, how big it was in the dream or not, we don't know. But it's, it's a great image, large, tall. The second word is splendor. Of course, we're going to see what it's made out of, and it's made out of metals and, and uh, fancy stuff, and it glows. There's a brightness to it that would make one pause when they saw it. But the last word that's uh, interesting is the word awesome. Its form, it says, was awesome. Now, in English of the last 40 years, we've kind of changed the meaning of the word awesome. That's not the way it, what it means in the Hebrew text of this passage. Some translations actually will do it. My New King James that I'm using uses awesome. It carries the idea of terrible or frightening. 
So we can see why Nebuchadnezzar was bothered by the dream. This was a frightening image to him. Now, I've had many frightening dreams in my life. I have a lot of dreams, and I always dream in color. Some people dream in black and white. I dream in color. I've never been given what I thought was a message from God. But I remember when I was a little boy, about seven or eight years old, I don't know what it was I watched on television that made me get this dream. It had to be something. But I had this dream that I was standing in a long line going up a hill. In this line were kids and teenagers and adults, and we're all going up to the crest of a hill. And you, I couldn't see what was on the other side of the hill until you got to the top of the hill. And I kept going little by little by little, got to the top of the hill, looked down, saw there was a river and there was a boat in the river, and people were getting on the boat one at a time, and standing in the water was a giant woman about five stories tall. And she was reaching down and picking, once they got on the boat, picking them up and eating them. <laughs> now remember, I'm seven or eight years old. I'm having this dream. And as we get closer and closer and closer, you know how it goes. And I'm just about to step on the boat and I wake up. <laughs> Praise the Lord. <laughs> I will hate to see what the rest of that dream. So we know what dreams and strange things, but Nebuchadnezzar was bothered by this statue. It was a frightening thing for him. Now, the details of the dream beginning in 32. The image's head was gold. It's a rather straightforward list. Fine gold, chest, of arms, chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, and its feet partly of iron and clay. That's just a simple list of what it's made of. It's not self-evident just right there what they might refer to. And scholars today even argue about some of them. Now, some of it's clear, as we will see. And in uh, 34 and 35, we see something that follows and, and deals with the statue. We see a stone that smites the statue. And then we see a stone that this describes it not from man's hand. And of course, as we get back and see the big picture, it's from God's hand, not man's hand. And there is absolute destruction of the statue. And the stone uh, becomes a mountain. And the stone fills the earth. Now, some of the post-millennialists, who are dear brothers, but they're wrong. Believe this is a picture of the church ushering in the kingdom. Nothing of the sort. It's God who comes, destroys the statue in the end time days. As the whole book of Daniel unfolds, that'll become very, very clear. Premillennialism is, in my opinion, an easy doctrine to believe. You just have to take the Bible at face value and you're there. You don't have to jury rig anything. Just accept it and you're there. So this, this fifth kingdom, as it were, comes and destroys the statue. But there's been some discussion about the identity of these four parts of the statue and their representation as kingdoms. But I have to say to you that even though there's been some disagreement, the vast majority of scholars, even those in liberal land, agree with us. 
as to the identity of these four. Now, I know there's a lot of theories floating around, and uh, lately since 9-11, the rise of uh, Islam, again, seemingly at least in our focus, uh, has, has caused a, a change in the, in the discussion somewhat. But the first world empire is clearly Babylon or Nebuchadnezzar. Now look at verse 37. You, Daniel talking to Nebuchadnezzar, O king, are a king of kings, for the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven, he has given them into your hand and has made you ruler over them all, you are this head of gold. So Nebuchadnezzar, as the leader of the empires, the head of gold, but it also stands for the empire, and we see that throughout the Bible, that uh, the nations, the empires, and their rulers are kind of looked at as one. And we do that today too, right? Isn't Donald Trump America to the many in the world? When President Obama was president, he was, he was America to the world. Same way, and then when you get to Revelation 13, the Antichrist, sometimes it's difficult to know whether it's talking about the empire of the beast or the person, the individual who leads it. Uh, so here it's Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, the head of gold. That was an easy identification. The second world empire is Medo-Persia. And it's very interesting to me that the first three of these world empires are clearly identified in Daniel. You don't have to argue about them. In chapter 5, who is it that comes and destroys Belshazzar? It's the Medes and the Persians. They're labeled. No problem. And 820, it is the Medo-Persia Empire. That's the one that follows Babylon. The third world empire is Greece. It's named in verse 21 of chapter 8. When you go over there, uh, got the ram and the goat. The ram which you saw having the two horns, they are the kings of Medo and Persia. And the male goat is the kingdom of Greece, named in the book. We don't really have to go searching very much to find the sequence that's here. And then the fourth world empire is the one that is not named as clearly, but which is the main empire uh, that really flows out of this. And when you get to the book of Revelation, uh, that's when uh, at least the Roman Empire is in power when that book is written. And so you have Rome as the identification of that, and you have a hint of that in Daniel 11. I know we have a message later on it, so I don't want to steal any thunder, but let's go over there to Daniel 11, verse 30. This is during the Greek time, not during the Roman time. But it uses, uh, in my New King James, it says, For ships from Cyprus shall come against him. That is, come against uh, the Syrian leader of the Greek uh, time. The problem with Cyprus as a translation is that uh, the Hebrew word there is katim. I have it listed here, katim. That word at one time started as a city in Cyprus. Then it became a name for all of Cyprus. Later it became a name for the Greeks and Alexander. But at the time this was written, they were looking farther down the Mediterranean to the Romans. In fact, in the Septuagint Greek translation of the Old Testament, the very word Romans is used right here in this passage. So it's a reference, a hint, during the Third World Empire that the next guys on the block who are moving in against the Greeks are the Romans. And of course, we know in history that's exactly what happened. 
The Greek period ended when the Romans ascended. So you have those four world kingdoms. Another look at the, uh, the statue. The kingdoms here are progressing through time. We're not, it's not a skipping around. It is a progression that is based on time. The materials that make up the statue are less valuable as, as you go down the statue. Is that right? Gold, silver, bronze. Which would you rather have, a gold piece or a bronze piece in your pocket? Okay, that's pretty easy. And then the iron. Okay, so they're less valuable. Uh, some would say that inferior, right? The picture of inferior in terms, I mean, still bronze is special, iron is special, but inferior to gold, silver. And in fact, it uses that term, verse 39, but after you shall arise another kingdom, inferior to yours, talking about the Medes and Persians, inferior to Babylon. So it's inferior. Does it mean less powerful? No, look at verse 40. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything and like iron that crushes that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. So it's, I mean, we know about the power of the Roman Empire. So it's not inferior in power. Our empire, are the empires getting smaller? Are they inferior in landmass? Well, the answer to that is in these pictures. There's the Babylonian Empire, pretty big. There's the Persian Empire, bigger. There's the Greek Empire, even bigger. There's the Roman Empire, even bigger. So as you progress through the kingdoms, the four world kingdoms, they grow in their landmass in terms of the territories that they actually control. So what is the idea here of inferior? And uh, commentators have waxed eloquent uh, on this uh, point. Uh, one suggestion, uh, which I think is uh, an interesting one, is that uh, the morality decreases as you go along. Really? Um, Nebuchadnezzar's time, pretty bad apples. They replaced the Assyrians, who were really bad. Um, you, you don't see that, I don't think. Okay. Uh, they're all bad in history. Okay. Uh, probably the best thing that I've seen is that the absolute authority of the king diminishes. Nebuchadnezzar was absolute monarch. Okay. The Medes and the Persians, the leaders there, they had the laws of the Medes and Persians, which what? Change, can't change. Uh, so they always were under a law, so to speak. Okay. And then you have Alexander in Greece. And uh, you know Alexander was very short-lived his part, but then it divided into four parts. And so you have less power consolidated. And then you come to the Romans, and you have the famous battles between the Senate and Caesar. And so you have a republic, so less authority centralized. Of course, they're fighting over that all the time. So I think that's probably the best way to look at that. But, you know, the text doesn't give us all the details. And so we need to be careful where we are dogmatic. Let me go back to the two legs and talk about that a little bit. The two legs, uh, boy, there's been a lot of talk about the, what the two legs refer to. Uh, the two legs actually start during the Greek period. 
That's often missed. They talk about the two legs in the Roman period. But the thighs are part of the bronze part of the statue. So what do the two legs mean? Do they mean anything? Uh, some would suggest one means west and one means east. Because Greece did cover both west and east in territory. Uh, another view, because of the breakup of the empire and Israel's part relative to the rest of the book of Daniel, but it's talking about the king of the north, king of the south. Egypt and Syria, those two parts of the Greek period that were Israel's right in the middle. Now we come to Rome, the, the legs continue, and there's two parts to Rome. There are different views out there, and I'll share a couple with you. One says, uh, one leg is pagan Rome, before the rise of Christianity. The second leg is papal Rome, both viewed as negative. Some say the first leg is the papacy. You know, in the Reformation, this is very popular. The Antichrist is the Pope. And second leg is Islam. It may be simpler just to say that they represent East and West. And we don't know the details, and we'll find out as we go along. God will let us know, perhaps. Back to the Fourth World Empire again. We had read some of that section, but did you notice how ruthless it was? In verse 40. Crushing and breaking in pieces and crushing all the others. It was a ruthless empire. But there's a later version. There's the earlier version and the later version. Now, when I talk about Daniel 9, the 70 weeks here uh, throughout through our conference, we'll see there's a gap uh, that separates uh, time relative to that. And so I think there's an early Roman Empire, and the later one we sometimes call it the revived Roman Empire. And this probably applies to that. Look in verse 41. Whereas you saw the feet and the toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. In other words, there's not a, the point there is not two kingdoms, but it's, it's not a unified kingdom. There's kind of, we might say, fighting in the ranks. Yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. So the early kingdom strong as iron, crushing, but the later one weaker. And it goes on to say in verse 43, as you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. So the empire is having a hard time staying together. It's there, has some strength, but also has some weaknesses. That phrase, they will mingle with the seed of men, some interpreters have said that refers to the, uh, the kings and the queens, uh, uh, you know, the... Uh, one family, you know, the guy from France marries a gal from Spain, you know, and all the interbreeding of the kings, and we know what that happened. Made the leader senile, but you know, a lot of leaders, leaders are senile without that, uh, as we have found out. I don't know that that's what that means. I think it simply means uh, as people propagate, as we go along, as we go along the quarter of time, it's, they're not, not going to get together. We're not going to, we're going to have trouble adhering to one another, being a unified kingdom. I think that's probably all that it means. So it's a very interesting description. Then we have the picture of God's coming kingdom. Notice it's permanent in verse 44. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom 
which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms. And it shall stand forever. In 1975, I'd been a Christian for one year. And at my university, the University of Alabama in Huntsville, they had a symposium. One day they had Moshe Dayan from Israel. The guy with the patch over his eye came to speak. I was less than a year old in the Lord. And they had an Egyptian come the next day. This is two years after the Yom Kippur War. And uh, uh, during the Q&A, it was a very boring speech by Moshe Dayan. Statistics about tanks and other things. It was a very boring speech. But the Q&A was fabulous. A bunch of Palestinian refugees were there. And, and one gal from the university got up and said to him, uh, Mr. Diane, I represent a certain world organization for peace. And it, we predict, now this is 1975, we predict it will take us 25 years to train all the children in the world to want peace. How'd that work out for you? <laughs> uh, and then she said, How, do you think Israel can hold out till then? And I'll never forget the look on Moshe Dayan's face. I'm talking to an idiot. Um, and, he, and he said this, Israel will stand forever. Okay. Now when God comes back, he's going to make it so. And so there is never be destroyed. It will stand forever. Now, some people think we're already in the Messianic kingdom. Just look out the window. You know, I live in the Philadelphia area. If, if, if we're in the kingdom, somebody forgot to tell Philadelphia. Uh, it's overwhelming. Verse 44, you know, that it, um, it shall break in pieces, consume all these kingdoms. It's overwhelming. And then the kingdom is definitely from God. It wasn't cut out of the mountains without hands. It's God's kingdom. The God of heaven sets it up in verse 44. Does this begin at the first advent or the second advent? Now, you already know my view, right? This is when Jesus comes to set up his kingdom. And we know that, it has to be that, follow the book of Daniel. Where are we headed? The resurrection, Daniel 12, 2. This is a movement toward the end time days, not something that happened a long, long time ago. And so that kingdom is on its way. That's why we can say we know better days are ahead for us who know the Lord. Now let's look at Nebuchadnezzar's response. In verse 46, did he worship Daniel as if Daniel was God? Interesting, he says in verse 46, then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, prostrate before Daniel, and commanded that they should present an offering and incense to him. And so I said, okay, Nebuchadnezzar's worshiping Daniel. Not so fast. Because what, what's the next verse? What's the next verse? The king answered Daniel and said, Truly your God is the God of gods. No, he's just paying homage to Daniel, the messenger of God. Yeah, he overdoes it. But I don't think he's worshiping Daniel as if Daniel is God. I don't think that's happened at all. Uh, did Nebuchadnezzar get saved? Yeah, well, I hug Nebuchadnezzar's neck when I get to heaven. There's a debate, and even later in the book, there's another opportunity. Some people think he got saved there. 
Uh, I don't know. I don't think he did here. I think he's putting things through his polytheism with many gods. And I think he just put Daniel's God at the top of the chain. It's probably what happens here. Uh, I'd love to see him one day, but the Lord knows whether that's true or not. But I, I don't think he's, if he gets saved in the book of Daniel, I think it's later. He promotes Daniel and his friends. Then the king promoted Daniel, gave him many great gifts, doesn't list what they are, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. That's, uh, that's chief of staff. That's high up. Nobody had more authority, at least at this point in the history of Babylon, than Daniel except for Nebuchadnezzar. And then uh, we, have to, we have to notice one thing. Daniel uh, remembers his friends. 49. Daniel petitioned the king, and he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon, but Daniel sat in the gate of the king. Daniel didn't forget his friends. But the bottom line for all this is that it's not really Nebuchadnezzar that raised him up. Who is it that raised him up? It's God that raised him up. And so we understand that, that God is active in the affairs of the world. Okay, that's the passage. So what? Remember our point from the inverted order of chapter 2 and 7 going together in chapter uh, 3 and 6 and chapters 4 and 5. And we see it displayed, the theme displayed in this chapter. God brings down the pride of the nations. Do you remember the book of Habakkuk? That book starts out and, and Habakkuk, I, I label Habakkuk the complaining prophet. He's just griping. God, look around. Got all this stuff going on that's evil, and you're sitting by and not doing anything about it. And God says, I am doing something about it. I'm raising up the Babylonians to come and stomp on your country. Habakkuk did not like that answer. And God had to explain to him, I'll, I'll take care of them. Chapter 2, they'll get theirs in the right time. But in the meantime, your sin has to be judged, and I'm going to use them to do it. God is active in the affairs of the world, pulling up, bringing up nations, but pulling them down due to their sin. And so we need to understand that and, and factor that into all our thinking about the present world. What about Israel? Israel is not named in this chapter, but clearly, who is Daniel? Okay, uh, he's a Jewish person. He's from Judah. He's one of the special chosen uh, ethnic people of the world and God places him in this uh, kingdom at this time to interpret, one of the things he's going to do is interpret this vision uh, to try and help Nebuchadnezzar but also to give to us and all those through history who have had the word of God in our possession to understand how God deals with the world of nations and then of course we know from the rest of the book that God is setting Israel up to get her kingdom when he comes What about America? You know, I, I'm an American. Not everybody here is an American. Uh, we have at least one Polish person at our conference. He's going to speak. Timothy Rabinick. 
Uh, he's not American. He's Polish. And I know some of you may be from Canada or Kenyatta. Um, <laughs> some of you may be from other countries. You're not American. But those of us who are Americans, I mean, we have the biggest military right now. Do you think that military can stand up against God and his purposes? No, no. And so we can't act as if it's going to go on forever. God can pull us down, just like he did Assyria and Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. God can do that. So we, as Americans, especially Christians who are Americans, should not be arrogant about our nation. Yes, appreciate all the good. And there's much more good than sometimes we get credit for. I understand. Uh, but we need to remember that God is the one that pulls down as well as builds up. And let's pray for our nation. We desperately need revival. What about you? This message of, to the nations, does that, I mean, how do you fit in with that? Other than I just told you you're in America and you can pray for revival and you can have a right attitude about that. What about you in your life individually? Well, here's one of the takeaways I get from this. Which is harder for God to control world leaders and their lives, you know, like Donald Trump, or my life? Which is harder for God to deal with all the world events China, North Korea, and Russia, and all of that complicated stuff. And I'm sure you and I only know a thimbleful, and we're probably happier for it. Is it harder for God to do that or to help you in your life? You see, if God can do all the other, he can take care of you. So I think we need, one of the takeaways is we need to realize how big a God we have. Remember, he's the creator. He created everything out of what? Nothing. And that's harder to do than to raise one puny body from the dead. God is a big God. Did you hear about the two engineers that came to God and said, we've, we've figured out how to create life? Have you heard that? They came to him and said, we figured it out. He says, okay, show me. So they reach down and grab some dirt, and he says, no, no, get your own dirt. <laughs> God is big, and he can handle the affairs of the world and the nations. The destiny of the Gentiles is in the palm of his hand, and so is your life. For more audio resources, including MP3 downloads of past prophecy conferences, visit us at foi.org.